This episode is brought to you in part by Zondervan, publisher of Is Everyone Happier Than Me? An Honest Guide to the Questions That Keep You Up at Night. Written and narrated by Sarah Bragg and available everywhere March 19th. Welcome to the Grace Enough Podcast. I am your host, Amber Cullum. This week, I sit down with Joshua Sharif. We discuss his life as a Muslim boy in Egypt, his immigration to the United States, coming to faith in Jesus, and casting a wider net for discipleship in our communities. Josh shares his experience as a U.S. immigrant and as a pastor of a church representing more than 30 nationalities and speaking 20 languages. In his new book, The Stranger at Our Shore, How Immigrants and Refugees Strengthen the Church. As you know, I interview a lot of authors on the show. What I love about interviewing authors is they've spent months, sometimes years, delving into the topic or life experience they've written about. Along the way, there have been books that have influenced me in ways I didn't expect. So I've curated a list of eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me as a free resource for you. If you are already a part of the Grace Enough community, you've received this list in your inbox. If not, you can find the list at graceenoughpodcast.com slash books or by clicking the link in the show notes. Good afternoon, Josh, and welcome to the Grace Enough podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we are going to jump right into our conversation because we have a lot to talk about today, particularly the book that you have recently published, The Stranger at Our Shore. And so as we dig into that, go ahead, lay a little bit of a foundation of where you grew up, a little about the childhood dynamics for you uh, before we really talk about the story. Sure. Uh, you, you can't really quite tell by my accent, but I grew up in Egypt. I was uh, early part of my life was in Egypt and I grew up in a, a Muslim family. And we were, I would say, for a while, fairly nominally Muslim in a religious sense, but very culturally Muslim. For us, all that changed when my father had a, a heart attack, a kind of a health scare. And then he you know, wanted us to be very devout. And for me, that was a just amazing thing. I and our family had a real sense of um, wanting to, you know, if there's this God in, in the universe, then that's a big deal. And so, yeah, you know, before that time, I was probably the one dragging my father to the mosque. And I had this ambition to to please God by being an imam. And so that's what I'd, I'd play with all my cousins. I would line them up and lead them in prayer as if we were in the mosque. So I grew up in a Muslim culture in a Muslim home and really was saturated with that. That's that's all I knew my early years until I immigrated to America. So tell me then with your dad, how old were you when he experienced the heart attack? I'd probably say I was six years old or so. Okay. I was just thinking about that recently because, you know, my kids are now at the age of mm. sort of when I was experiencing a lot of these huge life changes. But you still have a very vivid memory then that you had this draw toward God, even at that young of an age. I spent a lot of time uh, thinking about 
mm. uh, these things. I, I'm not sure why. It's probably a little unusual for a kid that age. But I had, a, I remember having a lot of religious questions mm-hmm. from my parents. I remember my name's uh, Sharif in Egypt, and I remember, you know, asking, you know, why couldn't I be named Muhammad? And I, I really oh. wanted to pursue. I had a real sense of God and felt like if there's any value in life, it's it's to pursue a God who's our maker. And, yeah. and so I, I was hungry for that. And partially, I think I was exposed in the culture around me, but it wasn't so heavy in our home just yet. And so right. I, I was hungry for something that was, you know, just kind of barely there. I do think there are some kids who have a little bit more of this bent early on towards um, questions of what's out there, what's going on. I mean, my oldest son is very much that way. So uh, I get that for sure. That's why I was just curious. You know, it's hard to know what he'll actually remember when he gets older about some of the thoughts he had when he was six. So it's good to hear um, that you have some of those really strong memories. Well, your family did eventually immigrate to the United States. And so what ended up bringing you guys to the States and what were those first few years like as a family in a foreign land? Yeah, it really was a, a miracle of God. So it started with my grandmother and my grandmother, my mother's mother is the first Christian in our family. And she had, you know, before I was even born, she had left Egypt and come to the United States because of the persecution of, of her conversion. And um, so, you know, she was really pushing for us to come to, to America. Now my father was always against it. Uh, My mother you know, I'd hear her talking about it, but ultimately in Egypt and the way the system works, uh, the father, the man is the one who decides who travels and when they travel and have to sign all that. So, you know, he was a doctor, he had no interest in moving, but, but I do remember one particular visit. My grandmother had come back to Egypt and, and she did occasionally as a, as a U.S. citizen. Now it was easier for her to, to come and visit. And before I knew it, it was like a week's time we were packing up to move to Egypt and you mean uh, moved to the States. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Moved to the States. Really? Wow. And, and what I didn't understand that was happening was really God was working out a miracle. I also didn't know that at a young age, my mother had a encounter with Jesus as well and had been living really as a secret Christian for a long time. So much. So I think that, you know, some of my religious questions and my interest in Islam, I think was alarming to her, but we really weren't exposed to anything with Christianity. And I I think for her, she had kind of felt like God had given up on her. Mm. And my grandmother came and and basically said that in prayer, she was sure that God was going to demonstrate his power and and get her out of Egypt and get us out of Egypt. And into America. And my my mother, I think was just so beat down and so discouraged in her faith that she was like, okay, we'll see. And Mm -hmm. it was one conversation and it was probably the hundredth conversation with my father, but my grandmother said, you, you guys need to all come. You can start a medical practice there. You can start this new life. There's a lot of opportunities. And, um, he just said, yes. Wow. Okay. Bought the tickets right away that now the way it was set up, uh, my father never never made it. Um, he, he basically sent us ahead of time. We left, I mean, days later, I, I, I wow. left. With a bag. It, it was, 
it was really crazy. But I do remember as he was, you know, dropping us off at the airport and hugging us. I remember him saying things like, I'm not going to let you guys leave. I don't know why mm-hmm. you guys are doing this, things like that. But at the, the same time, he was just still like hugging us, kissing us, sending us. It was like he was saying one thing and doing another. You know, it, it felt like God really was pushing us mm-hmm. out of Egypt. And, and I distinctly remember being on the plane. Uh, I'm I'm sharing a lot more details with you than, than I normally do. Um, I'd snuck a, a pet turtle, by the way, on the plane. This is <laughs> this is in the '90s, so it was a little more That's relaxed. Right. All you people listening who didn't live pre 9/11, you have no idea what's going on right now. <laughs> I had like I was feeding it lettuce off of our, you know, our food and stuff like that. So um, awesome. But I look over, and my mother had taken off her head covering her a job. And I remember just being so shocked because we're in this public place in this plane. I just told my mother, you're, you're going to go to hell. And I did not understand what she was saying then, but it stuck with me because mm. it was scary to hear. She said, uh, I just got out. Oh, wow. And I mean, I remember that moment for the rest of my life because it was just, you know, I had no clue what she meant by that, of course, but, but it was alarming. And, and really then, you know, I haven't gotten to the, just coming to America, but from then on, it was really just a a scary time for, for us. Yeah. So it was scary here in the States. But I, before you go into that, though, I need to know. So your dad never made it to America. No. You know, as soon as we, we got there, it was like he had woken up from, from a dream because he needed to get on a plane and, and get back. Uh, we're not moving. Really? You can have a little visit with your, your family and then you're coming back. And so I just remember you know, in the first even month of us being there, just these fights on the phone where my father's like, I'm not coming and you're coming back. And I think my mother had realized what God was doing. And as soon as she landed in America and was able to go to, you know, like a Arabic speaking church and she realized God's doing something here. And, you know, I remember her shortly after that, like rededicating her, her life to Christ. So my world was completely spinning on upside down. I had no clue what was going on. So I, I get into it in the book, but so from, from that day on, since we left, I, I didn't see my father. Wow. Uh, that's ever. really hard. Yeah. You know, my mother came to Christ and then I came to Christ and then my sister came to Christ and um, r- real quickly it turned dangerous for my mother. It was kind of one of those things where we're going to get these kids back and you're going to mm. get what's, what's coming to you. And so we spent 10 years uh, living on the run, anonymous names, going across the country, PO boxes, all kinds of of crazy stuff. There was a point where we were in this apartment and our phone was tapped and the FBI was involved. It was just, it was crazy. It was like real, real crazy to live like that and do that in the U.S. And at this point, are you all, you've already come to Christ yourself, or is it just your mom at this point? No, at this point, I'd already come to Christ as well, and so. I, you know, I, I began to understand what was at stake and what we were leaving behind. Mm-hmm. And I think the tension for me was, was twofold because I wasn't like a, you know, a single person who's made this decision to, to follow Jesus. We're kind of together as a family. There was no, I would say, mortal danger for me as a kid that age, but there was the real fear of what would happen to my mother. Mm-hmm. So, so the, the nightmare scenario was, something bad was going to happen to my mother. And then we were going to be kidnapped and essentially and taken back to Egypt. Mm -hmm. That was kind of the, to be honest, I 
I, you know, and I go into this in, in the book, that kind of theme of fear permeated a lot of my childhood, just kind of like mm. hearing noises outside. And you're like, is this the night that, you know, this is going to happen? But it was also a time of God's grace. And I would say that parable of finding a treasure in the field is important to me. That's how it categorized that whole time. It was, you know, we'd found this good news of Jesus, this treasure in the field, and we soberly and were willing. And I would say each one of us, not just kind of a, a something that, that my mother did and we followed along, were willing to give up everything to go wow. buy that field and, and, and gain that treasure. Well, and see, what I really want to do is ask you every... <laughs> Yeah. Ask you every detail and every nuance to what do you mean the FBI was involved and in? what do you mean about it? But I also want people to pick up the stranger at our shore. So I'm not going to ask all those questions. I'm going to refrain. But I do want to ask, so what was it about Christianity? What was your experience that actually ended up causing you to leave Islam and become a Christian? When I think about this, I can't think of the day that I became a Christian but I do know kind of the context. Mm-hmm. Me, it was, we were living with our grandparents, my mother's mom and my step-grandfather. And the book is dedicated to both of them. Mm. They've both passed away, but they would sit in this, this office room that they had and they would read scripture out loud every morning. And, mm. you know, looking back, it's completely to, for our benefit. They just wanted to us to hear the word mm-hmm. of God, because they don't need to be door open, reading scripture out loud where everyone can hear him. It, it, you know, in fact, it annoyed me at, at that age. <laughs> I'd walk by and I would be just very rude. I would, I just say, you know, your scriptures are corrupt or, you know, they'd be praying. Mm-hmm. I'd, and I'd say like, your God doesn't hear you. I was very rude. You can't do that as a, as a grandchild. But I think mm-hmm. I was, I was more lashing out at what was being presented, you right. know, something oh, yeah. that was shaking my worldview. And so I, I went from passing by hurling insults to, to kind of lingering the door to being in the room, hearing mm. scripture read, um, to starting to, and I still have it like this little blue Arabic Bible, you know, started reading it myself with them. Oh, wow. And, you know, what I discovered in scripture was a, a God who just was completely different in character than anything I'd been presented with. And again, this is something I could probably put into words better today than back then. Right. But what I saw in, in Jesus is, you know, a father, a savior, and a God who is love. And those mm-hmm. characteristics just are unmatched and unfound in, in anything specifically for me, in my context, the, the God of Islam that I had been hmm. pursuing. And I think right there in that room, I found that my concerns about pleasing and pursuing God kind of put to rest in the in the grace that Jesus offered. I found a God who was more passionate and in more pursuit of me than I could ever uh, be of of him. And so mm. for me, it just was a, a truth revealed that I couldn't deny. Yeah. And oh, it's hard to put into words, isn't it? Yeah. This episode is brought to you in part by Beyond Ordinary Women Ministries, which prepares Christian women for leadership. At Bow, we believe that every woman is a leader because she influences someone. So, whom do you influence? Do you mentor a woman, serve in the workplace, or do you lead a small group, teach the Bible, or even lead an entire ministry? No matter who or how many you influence, our free online resources will help equip you. 
Our videos, podcast episodes, and articles from experienced women leaders will encourage you and perfect your leadership skills. They offer wisdom for dealing with ministry pitfalls, current biblical issues, health for your own soul, and insights for shepherding others well. In addition, Bow offers Bible studies designed to connect women of multiple generations. They provide a challenge to both women new to the Bible and those wanting to dig deeper. Be our guest and browse all of our free resources and low-cost Bible studies at beyondordinarywomen.org. So while your book is a lot memoir, a lot your story, it is also a call to Christians like me to think about the immigrant and the refugee a little bit differently, especially when it comes to discipleship. And honestly, I I feel like we really need to be thinking about discipleship a little bit differently altogether, because I don't necessarily think we're doing very well at that, not just for the immigrant and the refugee. Um, But what are some of the problems that you've seen in the church today regarding how we do relate to immigrants and refugees. Yeah. And I think even before I I say that, if I can just share a little bit of my heart and kind of crafting it and putting this book together, first of all, to me, this is like a a love letter to the church. The church Mm. took me in, it discipled me, it recognized my gift. The people of God surrounded me, equipped me, discipled me, sent me out, all of that. And so I think what I'm hoping to do is to see that repeated mm-hmm. and to encourage a church and say, by the power of the Holy Spirit and by God's grace, the church can do this. And d- let me tell you how it's been effective. And so my story in the book, and I was very careful, I, d- I don't want to share anything that isn't to that end to say, you can repeat it. Because I think often we share stories that are like, this is so unique. This is a, you know, that that's what it'll sell. It's this once in a, a, in a lifetime kind of story right. that you can hear. And I'm trying to say, this is something God wants to do again and again, and is doing again and again. Mm. And and you can be part of that. I also don't think that the church needs, you know, another book or resource that beats it down. Mm. And so often I've read books that I completely agree with, but I feel like I'm on level one after I read it and it's calling me to level 10. And I feel I agree with everything that I just read. I feel discouraged a bit. I feel like, how am I going to get there? Yeah. So I I wanted to be careful about that as well and how I approached writing this book. So when we talk about problems and obstacles in the church today, I just wanted to have the right heart in approaching those Mm -hmm. so that it would build up the church. I want to respect the bride of Christ and and Mm -hmm. love the bride of Christ along with Jesus. So that's kind of my tone I try to have in the book, try to be very truthful, very honest, and even convicting. But I think there's a way to convict and, and call people that encourages them into action, which is really the hope and reproduction of what's happened. So, you know, the big theme that I tie through this book is fear, you know, um, and what I'm able to do is is give the lens both ways, because walking into the shores of America or, or any other country as a immigrant or a refugee, there's fear there. And honestly, I'm discovering again, again, in the work I do and in trying to reproduce what happened in me with other families who are coming to America that, you know, there is just so much uncertainty and fear that people come in with. And so that fear is not one-sided and that fear is often met with fear as well for the, the- from the other side. Exactly. 
And so I, I try to address both of those in, in the concept of fear and call people with scripture to having the right mind as we look at this. And it's to look at things soberly. So so I'm not denying that there's ever danger because I, I can share with you, I've experienced the danger. Mm-hmm. But there's a confidence that we have in in Christ and in equipping for his mission that kind of goes beyond that. And so I, mm-hmm. I try to I try to point to that. I also spend some time really talking about the three heart issues is, is what I, I call them. And I, I call them in the book inadequacy, ignorance, and indignation, just because I'm a preacher. So I can <laughs> you gotta read. alliterate there a little bit. Exactly. If you can't alliterate, you don't graduate seminary. <laughs> but those are more found, I think, in the heart, because I think that's the foundation. What what I'm confident of is I don't need another thing to do. Everyone's lives are so busy. And so when I was thinking about how do we motivate people and how do we call people to action, I felt like scripture is very clear, kind of out of the overflow of the heart, our life mm. flows. And so if we can begin to to reorient our hearts, I do believe that there's there's going to be action. We do give a lot of practical steps for people to take, but that's that's where it starts. You know, I can highlight some of those, but I'll just give a little snippet for each one for the idea of inadequacy. I'm always repeating to myself when I feel inadequate, Acts 4, 13, when the disciples, Peter and John, are after they're, they've kind of been reprimanded by the Jewish leaders. The thing that the Jewish leaders take note of is that these were unschooled, ordinary men, but then they took note that they were with Jesus. And um, I think there's a real delight Mm. that God takes in using people that bring him glory. So at the end of it, and and I share some other scriptures that point to that, but the end of it, no one can say it's because this intellect is because this person's cultural background is because this training they went to, it's because of their resources they have at their, their church. It's because of their personality. That's why they're they're winning people to Jesus, mm. doing amazing things. No, it is despite me, and that gives glory to Jesus. That's good. You know, I think sometimes we we can filter out the credit that goes to Jesus by by our own uh, false sense of competence. And so, I don't call people to be self deprecating, but but I think there is a reason why Paul says I boast in my weakness because. Mm-hmm. Because God's glory and his strength flows there. And in that humility, in that humility of life, some of that humility is forced on, on some people. You know, some <laughs> of us are just in humble places. And uh, maybe the, the greater discipline there is to call ourselves back to humble places in our own hearts. And I think that's where God's power meets us. And then just a story, I guess, about ignorance would be, if I go up to a Middle Eastern person in the city here in Chicago and begin to speak to them, they're going to expect a few things. They're going to expect, I know the culture, I know the language, um, I know the customs. And so there's a lot of expectation. And so mm-hmm. over the course of, you know, decade plus here, what I've realized, there's some people who are just as far culturally as you can possibly get from another culture. Yeah. And I found that some of those people are some of the most effective disciple makers and evangelists that I've ever seen, more effective than me in my own people group, because when some of those people, I, I name them and I share the stories, you can, you can read them. They begin to build those friendships. Yeah. Then there is no expectation. You don't know the language. They don't know your language. Mm. They don't know your customs. You don't know their customs. Uh, 
there is, in a sense, nothing left unsaid. Everything has to be talked about. And there is so much grace, actually, because they don't expect you to, to um, get all their customs right. And we and don't- vice versa, right? Vice- like that, it's reciprocal um, grace given for ignorance. <laughs> and as you ask questions and they ask questions and as you try their food and they try your food, um, mm. that bridge of mutuality, I think, is really a a strong bridge for the gospel. Hmm. And you can go a lot deeper because you, you don't have the burden, you know, so ignorance in, in some ways I, I say is even a good thing. It's because it allows you to discover and, and you don't need to be a Hindu expert to reach your Hindu neighbor. You don't need to be a Muslim expert to reach your Muslim neighbor. Because in fact, I kind of, as somebody who's come out of that background, I kind of shrivel a little bit or shrink, you know, like just kind of get uncomfortable when there are these experts that say, this is how Muslim people think, or this mm. is how this people group think. Because I think what you're doing is actually not seeing them as individuals. And I had yeah. to even, I share that I had to learn that as everything was happening with ISIS, we started having refugees coming from Middle Eastern countries. And I realized, man, something is different in the way these friendships are forming, the way they're coming to, to Jesus. And I realized a lot of these people weren't really coming to Jesus from uh, Islam. They were coming to Jesus from atheism, secret atheism. They had left Islam because secretly because of the horrors they saw mm-hmm. in, in their countries as they, they fled and became refugees. And then they were rediscovering a sense of God. Um, mm-hmm. And I, I wasn't trained for that. I don't know ex- any expertise in that. I don't understand that. And I had to realize, wow, you know, every, there is no common category I can just place over people, but really everyone has an individual story that they're walking with. So mm. we need a little bit of ignorance so we can ask some, some questions. The last one is uh, indignation. It's this idea that, you know, we all, we all have a little bit of indignation. I talk about the, the story of Jonah. And I think that indignation, trying to get rid of indignation is really important. I think there's even a sense of, and I, and I won't even just talk about those who you know have issues with immigrants or refugees or whatever, and I try to be very apolitical in the book because I don't think that's what this is about. But I will say those who are, you know, I would say I would read my book and be encouraged and say like, this is where my heart is. I'm already doing this, whatever. I, I even have a kind of a warning to say, make sure that your indignation isn't just shifted, that it's actually gone. Because a lot of times oh. when we have a heart change, we look at the people who haven't quite yet had a heart change or don't quite see things that we see, let's say in the church. And instead of, you know, I used to have indignation towards Muslim people or immigrants or refugees, but now I have indignation towards my Christian brothers and sisters who just don't get it. Mm. I think what Jesus is calling us to is not to just shift our indignation, but to actually remove our indignation. I feel like we need to stop. (laughs) (laughs) Well, because I'm guilty. And I feel like I know I'm not the only one that's guilty Mm -hmm. uh, because it's just rampant, right? On if you spend any time on social media, um, you're right. I mean, how easy it is to be like, oh, now I'm better because I I want all the refugees and immigrants. Yes. Uh, But if you're just now being angry with your fellow brothers and sisters in Christ, like you said, I mean, isn't that the exact same thing you were doing, just addressing it towards a people group. Yeah, because in the same way, we then become friends and brothers and family with that people group and make the other people group strangers and foreigners among us. 
And so one of the things, even in the cover art of the book that I really wanted was a really a faceless face uh, as part, mm. because I think sometimes the stranger at our shore is really, they could be a stranger in our, in our living rooms or on our um, mm. holiday, uh, family holidays. And, and at the end, end of the day, I hope that while this is sharing my story and it's heavily leaning towards immigrants and refugees, I'd hope that anyone could read this book and say, I now have a solid and biblical base for Hmm. what kind of heart Christ calls us to, to make disciples. Wow. I so appreciate that because I, um, I just need it. So even if no one that, or anyone that's listening, that doesn't resonate with them, that certainly resonates with me. And that's the thing. This is not just, again, your story, but you, your personal story, but you have actually pastored, which you're not pastoring now, correct? No, not as a a full-time role. So yeah, I'm bivocational now and I'm in a new phase um, here, but yeah, we, we planted and pastored a a church for about a decade that was very multicultural and now trying to, to see what, what it looks like to help equip people to do this work in churches, to do this work across their cities and across their countries. And, you know, for the last, I'd say 14 years or so, I'd been kind of full-time pastor as my vocation. And so this is, um, this has been definitely a shift for us as we move to this, this kind of new bivocational model. And it's been really great though. So tell me what have been some of the challenges and even some of the successes that you faced as you planted this church in, um, I think you're in one of the most, it was in one of the most diverse neighborhoods in the country. Is that correct? Yeah. I think, you know, when we were planning to get in, it went through its life. It was, um, this zip code and one in New York that like went back and forth, like which one's the, the most wow. diverse. Uh, it, it was really interesting because you have this idea of what it what it'd be like to to do a multicultural church and in some sense that was like a a real buzzword mm-hmm. especially you know at the time still is and very challenging but also very rewarding because in some sense all you can unite on is Jesus when you have like mm-hmm. a dual cultural or quad cultural church you can kind of start splitting and saying like okay we're going to do these songs for these people and this kind of ministry that that this people group likes or we can we're going to have and and you can kind of section it off but we found ourselves in a place where we had like 30 different nationalities 20 different languages spoken and um you know we had services in english and spanish but we we realized like our english services are more more international one because it people was, want to learn english exactly and we even had we've even had people who joined the church found a sense of family and didn't speak any English and just sat there. It wasn't my sermons that <laughs> built them up or they eventually learned English and were able to understand the sermons and the music and, and all of that. But really it was, it was that kind of multicultural family environment. So, so we did a few things. We realized quickly your success in the congregation, whether you stay or, or leave in some sense is, is due to how well you can make cross-cultural friendships. Mm. And so, invested in that as an elder team. And that's not a white people versus, you know, not white people thing. That's like any culture that's coming in who's used to just being with their culture. It's difficult. We have to really be intentional in kind of teaching our people how to build cross-cultural friendships. And then we also said, we're going to need to eat every Sunday. And so we had this meal after 
church every Sunday where people brought whatever food they wanted, basically. We tried to control it, I think, at first, like, you know, here's the theme for this week. And we're, you know, I'm just uh, saying we all need to go back to potlucks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) I Um, mean, it really does like gathering around food. I mean, yeah, there is it, it is a unifying thing. Yes. And no matter what culture, yeah, the kids are running around and we're all eating food. So that was key. And then we just made the real decision that this is this church is going to be a place where you don't come to get your preferences met, but where you really lay down your preferences. Wow. And discover, I think, something deeper. You know, that's just from the get go. This isn't going to be like the church where you get this niche met or that niche met. Mm. And it was constantly evolving. So if you had people of a particular group who were talented musically, guess what our worship style was going to be for a while. Or you had people of a particular <laughs> right. cultural or nationality who really liked to cook, guess what most of our food was going to be for a while. Or, And that shifted because it was very transient as well. So, so the church was really transient because people were moving in and out of the neighborhood so much? Yeah, yeah. The, the neighborhood, the city is just so transient. So, mm. you know, I used to think, oh, you know, we have people for a couple of years. And then I realized now we really have people for a lease, um, an apartment. Mm. Lease. And um, now okay. there was people who stayed long term, right. but the majority of people, I feel like 80% was just like, you know, they, this is where they would get settled and, or even just people who weren't immigrants and refugees, just the nature of the city and, and all of that. And then I realized, you know, we might even really truly have people for nine months because when they first move into an apartment, they're they're like looking for churches or trying to figure yeah. out what to do, or maybe some somebody, a neighbor invites them. And then when they know they're leaving, that last month or two is kind of like a really phase out period. So that really forced us to to ask our questions like, how can we move to a more, you know, instead of constantly feeling like we're losing people, mm-hmm. how can we send people out? to all over the world as they go back to their home countries, as they go to different neighborhoods, as they go to different cities and suburbs. When somebody is with us for a while, how are they discipled, built up? And then when it's time for them to go, how can we kind of pull them up on stage and and say like, we're sending you with what you've been equipped with? So with what you learned, do you ever like work a lot with people now who are trying to do this in their churches and other places? I mean, that's a lot of what you're doing, right? Mm-hmm. What are some of the things that you feel like you tell them now? Is that um, laying the foundation of you You can't have all your preferences met? Like, how do you even communicate that to your entire congregation? Because my goodness, yeah. it's crazy. <laughs> like, the yeah. things will leave churches over. Yeah, I, I think a lot of my time in reflecting back is, and, and, the, and that's probably the method why I used it in the book, is to say it really starts with, with the heart, heart, the leader. Because I had a lot of expectations. I remember the first summer. So so anyway, just to say, I talked to those pastors, and I've had the opportunity to do this now with two or three pastors who have planted in Chicago in the last year with very similar visions of hearts. And it's about who you have. Because what I realized is, after a while, I know how to gather a group of people and start a service, but it's completely different to plant a community that's for a community that's in a community Mm-hmm. The real congregation were decided yeah, for the long haul. Yeah, not just okay. We have somebody who can preach, and we have music, and we mm-hmm. have signage, and you can, you know, put it on the website, and hopefully some people will show up. That's I would say starting a service. 
that's different than than building a community. But it's managing our expectations. It's responding to our people, not the other way around. There should be some sense of anticipation as a leader. But I think I've just been surprised over and over who who has come in the door where I've had, you know, like, we're going to be reaching these kind of people. No, mm-hmm. we're not. This is who's coming through the door. Um, right. And so it's, in a sense, starting with you and saying, I'm not going to let my preferences or my expectations dictate the way to um, the first summer when I realized how transient things were, we'd kind of blown up right away from like, a we we started like 27 people, I remember, because it was it was so little that I was just like counting like, okay, 26, 27. <laughs> um, and a year later, kind of, or, or like nine months later, we were having like a hundred people on average, you know, breaking that kind of under mark. Right. So exciting. And it was June and, and all of a sudden school let out. And so did everyone's leases and everything like that. Oh. And we had in that month of June, 30 something people leave. Wow. And I remember for the next six months, I was probably just going through the motions and so depressed because you're building these deep relationships. Yeah, I get um, that. And and I remember like one Sunday just being so convicted while I was preaching. It felt like I was preaching, but the words were coming out of my mouth and I couldn't tell you what I was, what I was saying. I'm sure mm-hmm. I had a sermon that I was preaching, but I was like in this prayer dialogue with God. And I felt like he was just saying, like, raise your eyes up, raise your eyes up. And I, I looked at the congregation sitting in front of me and it was like my dis- sense of disappointment and expectations and all of that had blinded me completely because mm. I looked and, and I had to ask one of the elders afterwards, who's kind of taken attendance or a counter or whatever, like how many people. And then I looked at like kind of the reports that I had, I'd been ignoring or not, you know, not really caring about. And for the last few months we were over a hundred, like 120 or something like that. But if you would have asked me how many people are going to church, I would have talked about last June and how we lost so many people and it could have been more. And I realized I was so busy mourning those that we'd lost Mm -hmm. that, you know, 30 left, but 60 came and I had not built any relationships with them. I was just disappointed that I was blind to them. And so realizing that the congregation is going to be built on who we have when God provides and that who God provides and what God provides is what we need to carry out the mission that he's given us. Mm. Really an important realization for us. Yeah. And I mean, isn't that really so good for any size church at any place, whether you have a ton of different, you know, cross-cultural people walking through the door or not, because the reality is I feel like the world, um, if you live in any city, it seems like it's becoming, they're all becoming more transient. And so, I mean, I am a person who gets really attached to people. So it breaks my heart when people move on because they're moving or whatever happens. And that can be really, I can only imagine what that would be like from a point, from the perspective of a pastor who you are pouring your heart and soul into these people. And then, you know, to not focus on that disappointment too long. Yeah. One of my good friends eventually just told me, and he was part of the congregation. He just said, Josh, I get a real sense that you think people are leaving you. Oh yeah. Yeah. And no one's doing that. And and I think logically I would have said, no, I I don't believe it, but that's the way I was, I was behaving. Right. You know, like I'm here, where are you going? But in in an amazing way, it really became reframed that, that immigrant journey where Mm. he started to talk in the church and say, we're all sojourners. 
yeah. we've come from different places and we're trying to build a family and home here and we have different places to go. Mm. It came to a point where I think sometimes my my elder team didn't didn't quite like it because I'd say everyone leaves. You're yeah. gonna leave, I'm gonna leave. And some of us leave different ways. Some of us, you know, God takes, you know, or, or it's That's that right. life. But but the only foundation and the only thing permanent and the only thing we can count on is is Jesus. And so let's start building our church that way. Mm. So so that we're ready and, you know, kind of became really obsessed with being replaceable for a long time, which was a big shift to my ego mm. because I like to feel important. Well, I think, I think you and the majority of the rest of the world <laughs> likes to feel that way. Well, let's close out with this. Um, I like that you said, you know, we are all sojourners and you also talk, you know, a lot about how in scripture, I mean, we see God's chosen people being these immigrants, these refugees in other countries throughout. Yep. And so how, um, why is it so vital for us to understand that and to really focus on that and to find um, hope in that to how we treat immigrants and refugees coming into our country? Like, what is that connection? Why is that vital to you? My hope is that everyone who reads the book will understand that this is the theme of scripture that, that mm-hmm. is just persuasive all the way, you know, in the dedication of the, the temple, first Chronicles 29, the, the prayer there, verse 15 is like, we're foreigners and strangers in your sight, God. Yeah. That's the dedication. And even like the, the hall of faith in Hebrews, verse. Hebrews 11, starting at verse 13 says all these people were still living by faith when they died. They did not receive the things promised. They only saw them and welcomed them from a distance, admitting that were that they were foreigners and strangers on earth. Mm-hmm. And so my hope is that we begin to see ourselves that way. And it's not that we're, you know, gracious people from a wealthy country welcoming the least of these, which that's beautiful. But it's it's realizing that we are all foreigners and strangers in the sight of God. Scripture mm-hmm. says we are once enemies of God. And it's at that point that Christ died for us and then br- that brought us into his family. Um, mm. And so once we realize that their story is our story in the family of God, how can we not be moved to help? And I think it goes into the sense of, of understanding how great a divide Jesus crossed for us. Mm. So when we realize that, I think we can begin to see the strangers and foreigners among us as people who are part of God's story in the same way that we were. Mm. And that, that would be my hope that it's not, it's not just an act of charity, but it's, it's a new identity that really comes from an old place. I'm not, I'm convinced I'm saying nothing new in this book, but hopefully highlighting what, what scripture says in a clear and motivating way. Well, I thank you so much because I think you absolutely do that. I mean, the reality is, is that God does use our personal journeys and stories in order to impact his kingdom in a way that only our personal stories can. And you have been um, faithful to steward that. And um, it sounds like you're continuing to do so. So um, thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for having me. If you want to dig deeper, you'll find a link to Josh's book, The Stranger at Our Shore, in the show notes, along with the link to eight books that were influential in ways that surprised me. 
Purchasing books from those links gives me a small commission at no cost to you and helps fund the production of Grace Enough. Thank you for listening to the Grace Enough podcast. Tune in next time.